Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Sherry Quinn. Major scientific studies conducted by a team of international scientists warned there will be virtually no fish or seafood from the oceans by the middle of the century. Only 50 years left for sea fish. Mark Kirklansky, prominent author of numerous nonfiction books and articles, well known for his bestseller, Cod, The Fish That Changed the World, has a new book now out for children and adults. It is called A World Without Fish. There, there's some fairly sophisticated concepts in there for kids, but, you know, kids are smart. and I, I think that uh, writers talk down too much when they write for kids, and uh, I think they're capable of a lot. The book is an easy-to-understand primer on the natural history of ocean fish and what is happening to them and their environment. I find that people are very interested, very concerned with this problem, but completely confused and lost, which is understandable because it's really complicated. So I thought that somebody ought to just lay it all out, you know, what the problems are and what will happen if they don't get fixed, which is really bad, what can be done, and and what can we do? Right, and in, in the course of all your reporting and documentation of the the fish in the world's oceans, how much has the problem gotten worse, or is it, I imagine, getting better in certain pockets? But you say that scientists say the number of large fish in the ocean has decreased by 90% over the past 50 years. That's a problem. Uh, of course, you know, scientists don't all agree on everything. I think there's some pretty much agreement that the number of large fish has decreased. You can document that. The, the, the largest uh, class size of uh, cod at the Boston market no longer exists because nobody ever lands cod of that size. And, uh, you know, you go to a Mediterranean market and all the fish are down to sardine size. And, you know, so it, it, it's clear that uh, there is a lack of large fish. Uh, and this is a problem because fish, unlike mammals, spend their whole life growing. And the bigger they get, the more eggs they lay. So a healthy population has to have some big old fish. And it's also a problem because of what it tells us. In, in nature, when a, when a species gets into trouble, their survival mechanism kicks in and they start reproducing at an earlier age, which in the case of fish means when they're smaller and the general population of that species starts to become smaller. So the absence of large fish is something to be very concerned about. A healthy fish population should have all different sizes, you know. It should have little juveniles, and it should have middle size, and it should have large, older fish, so that you know that the, the, the species is coming in at every generation, and that way it will flourish. And fish reproduction is not as simplistic as we are, as most people think, correct? That actually... Yeah. Uh, there, there was a long, for a long time, there was this misunderstanding, uh, because Mammals have, you know, litters of one to six, and um, birds tend to lay about that many eggs, one to six eggs. Uh, but fish lay thousands of eggs. Sometimes, uh, you know, large fish will lay, a large cod will lay over a million eggs. And people used to look at this and think, oh, well, these, these animals are indestructible. I mean, they reproduce so much. And Thomas Huxley, who was a leading British scientist in the 19th century and a great promoter of Darwin, put forth this idea that there could be no such thing as overfishing because fish laid so many eggs. Uh, the, the curious thing there is he didn't seem to read Darwin that carefully because <laughs> Darwin actually addresses this issue and points out that when a species puts out a lot of young, it's because there is uh, less of a chance of survival. Uh, and in fact, there there is very little chance for survival of fish eggs. And if the fish eggs survive, uh, the young juvenile fish probably won't survive. Between the turmoil of, of oceans and storms and all of the predators that are in the sea, uh, fish is doing very well if uh, six out of a million eggs uh lead to successful adults, so that actually fish reproduce at about the same rate as mammals and birds. I find the orange roughy story fascinating and that they turn orange only when they're dead. 
<laughs> yeah. I mean, you know you're in trouble when there's a when a fish is named after the way it looks when it's dead. I mean, it tells you that uh, uh, the people who are fishing it don't even know what it looked like when it was alive. Uh, it's a deep water fish, and we don't know very much about deep water fish. And so this is something that's happening is that as traditional fishing areas are getting overfished, uh, uh, fishermen are looking for other places to go. And most of the fish we eat are in fairly shallow coastal water, uh, not at all in the middle of the ocean. And now they're starting to look at some of these deep water fish. The orange roughy was one of them. And what they didn't realize about these kinds of fish is that they're very slow growing and they can take up to 30 years before they start spawning. So you have this fish and it looks like a full-grown fish, but it's not old enough to spawn yet. So it's biologically, it's the equivalent of, a, you know, eating a sardine-sized codfish. And, you know, you do that and you wipe out the species pretty quickly, which is what happened to uh, the, the orange ruffy. And you were a commercial fisherman yourself, correct? I was many, many years ago when I was a college student. And what did you fish? I fished for... Uh, Lobster in open ocean in a 45-foot wooden-hulled boat, hauling by hand, 200, 250 feet of line. And, and how did, did that influence your work in conservation? Uh, I loved it, and uh, I loved the fishermen, and uh, it gave me a great appreciation of fishermen and of the fishing life. Whenever I write about these issues, at the base of it is a tremendous respect for fishermen. I think that people don't respect them enough and don't understand uh, what remarkable and resourceful people they are and that they, too, are trying to solve this problem and save the oceans. Right. And also the uh, another interesting fact uh, um, that there is no such thing as a Chilean sea bass. Yeah, it's a Patagonian toothfish. But, you know, there, there's a lot of games. There have always been a lot of games played with fish names, you know, for marketing. You know, the, the, the British really like cod, and so everywhere they went, they named something cod. So on the West Coast, there's black cod, which isn't a cod. And in New Zealand, they discovered uh, blue cod, which also isn't a cod. And uh, for a while in New England, they were trying to market uh, dogfish, you know, uh, small sharks, and uh, they thought it would sell better if they called them Cape Shark, but actually it didn't, you know. But they thought the Patagonian um, toothfish would sell better if they started calling it Chilean sea bass, even though a lot of it isn't caught off of Chile, and it's not a sea bass at all. They are in trouble, right? Yeah, they are. Their fishermen and the fish market has been moving a lot to new species like orange ruffy and, and, and like Chilean sea bass because old species are, you know, in trouble and heavily regulated. And uh, they're devastating to these new species. They, they find a new species. When you go to the fish market, when all of a sudden you're noticing that every menu in every fish market has this new kind of fish that you never heard of, worry about this fish. You know, there's the story of how uh, the uh, Cajun chef Paul Prudhomme, a very nice man, accidentally almost caused uh, the uh, Gulf of Mexico red drum to be wiped out by making uh, black and red fish uh, fashionable. It, of course, wasn't his intention at all, but it became so fashionable that it created a huge market for this fish, which had been just this funny fish that just local people ate. Uh, and suddenly it became a, a big-time commercial fishing target and was almost wiped out. It's been brought back, um, although it's been set back again by the BP oil spill. With Chilean sea bass, I've seen it in, in some grocery stores, that, and it says that it has been sustainably fished. Is there such a thing as sustainably fishing Chilean sea bass? Well, apparently there is. This is a, a controversy. There's a group called the Marine Stewardship Council, which... Uh, has this very interesting idea they're trying to examine every fishery in the world and certify it. And this is an important thing because you can't really talk about a species. For instance, you can't say don't eat 
chili and sea bass because it's 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 not fished in a sustainable way uh, because maybe there is one group that is fishing it in a sustainable way and they found this group that, uh, that was and so they certified it you know and the idea is that you can then go to a market and if you see you know, you like Chilean sea bass. If you see it with this MSC label on it, then you know it's 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 the good one and it's okay to eat. Uh, but a lot of environmentalists were very angry with them for certifying this one little fishery because, you know, it was much simpler when you could just say, don't eat any Chilean sea bass. But I think it's important uh, that we reward people who, fishermen who do it right. The farmed fish that we eat is fed by wild fish that are caught by massive net draggers. Right. You know, you may eat farm fish and think that you're saving the ocean, but you may have killed more uh, wild fish for that one farm fish than if you just ate a wild fish. Also, there's a lot of uh, other environmental problems with fish farming. It's polluting, and it uh, tends to develop mutant varieties of a species because, you know, animals adopt to their environment, so you now have fish living in this environment where they're all crowded in and they don't swim around and uh, and there's not any predators there and they don't have to hunt for food. And if these fish get out and mingle with wild fish, they could destroy the species because they don't have any survival skills. Are there any healthy fish farms around the world? There are, although um, not nearly as many as there are that claim to be healthy. <laughs> the fish farming business is on to this, you know. <laughs> they're, they're coming up with all these uh, labels. I, I wouldn't eat farmed salmon even if it was labeled organically farmed salmon. Which ones are most commonly farmed? I know shrimp is a big one. There's a lot of shrimp farming. There, There's tilapia, which was a fish that was brought to this country for the sole purpose of farming. So all, all tilapia that's on the market in this country is, is farmed. Most of the trout you see in the, uh, on the market is farmed. Also in, in the, the book, you give a description of the coral reefs and the problems happening with the coral reefs and describe the challenges right now with keeping the coral reefs healthy and what is causing them to die. Well, they have a number of problems, but uh, one of the big problems, especially in the Caribbean, is the hotel industry and the the, the, the tendency to, I mean, what is a nice spot in a tropical place? It's a, it's a spot that's right on the water's edge by a beautiful coral reef. Uh, that's actually not a place you want to build because if you do that, the coast will erode and the erosion that goes into the water will suffocate the reef and it won't be a beautiful spot anymore. Hmm. You start killing off one animal species and you kill off the ones that depend on it and then the ones that depend on that. So there's a whole sub-ecosystem uh, of coral reefs that's very complex. And, you know, some of these reefs are thousands and thousands of years old, you know, living animals uh, with all these other animals that uh, depend on them. And you can destroy that whole system. How did we get into this predicament in the first place? Simply by overfishing? Overfishing uh, was certainly a, a major part of it. And there were very few controls on, on fishing for a long time. You know, at the point at which fishing vessels gave up sails and started using engines, fishing became more destructive than biology could survive. Uh, so we've been overfishing for a long time. We're actually doing much less overfishing than we were doing 40 years ago. But, you know, there's many other problems of pollution and uh uh, climate change. Right, and that's another issue that I don't think is um, quite at the forefront of people's minds, is, uh, that the sea actually is getting less salty, and that, that creates a whole other set of ecosystem problems. Right. And then also there are these great Pacific garbage patches, and these are islands of a trash that's been accumulated. Plastic. You know, plastic doesn't break down. It just... Uh, you know, it can lose its form and break down into globules, but that's about it. And there's a, a lot of it in the ocean, and then it just drifts around, and it moves in the currents, and it ends up in places where currents come together in the middle of the ocean, and and you get these big patches of it. And it's not like a pile of garbage. It's a kind of a discoloration is what it would look like, except that 
you know, occasionally there'll be something like a satellite dish or a chair or something. <laughs> and some people say the largest one is bigger than the United States. And then so the species that can survive these all these environmental insults <laughs> the best are jellyfish, cockroach. You call them cockroaches of the sea? The cockroach of the sea, yeah, because it's an animal we don't um, we don't much love, but it's just really built for survival. You know, one of the problems of species dying out is then the species that depend on it to eat don't have any food. But if that happens to jellyfish, they'll just find something else to eat. And they can also expand or contract their diet. Um, they can make themselves smaller. And uh, they're just really built for survival, and they will outlast us all. In a lot of my books, I have recipes. Right. Um, so the only recipe in this book is I gave a recipe for jellyfish salad. You might want to hang on to that. Maybe the the seafood dish. All right, I saw that. So we'll all be eating jellyfish salad soon. Right. <laughs> and who are the worst offenders in terms of overfishing in the oceans, the coastal waters, and pollution also? Well, you know, not surprisingly, the biggest offenders are the... Uh, fishing companies that are not working in their own seas. And uh, this was why the 200-mile limit was uh, established, so that you would not have people destroying other people's seas. The old story of getting the natural resources of a poor country, you know, you, you pay not really a huge amount of money and you can get fishing rights to uh, West African countries, 200-mile limit or uh, off of Peru, and uh, the, the rich northern hemisphere fishing companies that go down to fish in poor southern hemisphere waters tend to be very abusive. And so what countries are, is it what, the U.S. and Japan, well, the China? the U.S. does some yeah. of it, and, you know, Russia does some of it, and uh, Japan does some of it, and uh, all the big fishing powers do this now that they can't do it in their own waters. It's a really complex problem, right, because you have to yeah, I mean, when you start talking about these kind of international things, I mean, it's fishery management within a country, like within the United States, is, is uh, mandated by an act of Congress, and it's broken down into regions, and, and it's, it's kind of set up. Uh, but when you start talking about international problems, then it requires diplomacy. You know, we have to talk to the Japanese about these problems. And then you have the problem, the political problem, that uh, politicians don't think these issues are that important unless they come from Massachusetts or Washington or Oregon or Alaska. You know, a few states give some importance to commercial fishing, and uh, most of Congress doesn't. And grievances with Japan about fishing practices get brought up at international environmental conferences, but rarely come up in bilateral economic talks which is why it's not a bad idea, especially if you come from a state that isn't associated with commercial fishing, to write your elected representatives and tell them you're concerned about this issue. The government elected representatives would, would get much more involved and much better about this if they felt that people were more concerned about it. And since we've heard a lot about the bad, what can we do as concerned citizens to take action towards saving the ocean and the fish? Well, one thing that's starting to happen, which you can do a lot more with, is that people in the fish industry are beginning to understand that the consumer is concerned about this. So every time you go into a fish market or go into one of those sushi restaurants, uh, you know, start asking them questions about where this fish comes from and how it was caught. Probably in most cases they won't know. But if everybody keeps doing that, uh, then it will be part of the common wisdom of the fish industry that consumers want to know this stuff, and they'll start supplying this information, and they'll eventually become eager to supply the information because it'll be good marketing. And then, you know, nobody's going to want to order the bad news fish. That was Mark Kirklansky, author of A World Without Fish.
Support for science questions comes from the College of Science at Utah State University, where students step beyond the classroom participating in advanced research in the lab, field, and outer space. When students and faculty learn together, discovery follows. Information is at usu.edu science. Welcome to Science Questions. I am Sherry Quinn. Archaeological data suggests the Aceh Indians lived and hunted throughout the Atlantic rainforest in eastern Paraguay for thousands of years. Now they are cornered near a shrinking region of the endangered forest, the Ambarticaju Nature Reserve. It is rich in biodiversity and hosts several species threatened with extinction. The Aceh are well suited for the job of protecting the forest, but they face constant battles over the land. Salt Lake City resident Kevin Jones lived among the Aceh in the early 1980s when he was working on his Ph.D. in anthropology at the University of Utah. The experience changed his life perspective. Today on the program, Jones talks to producer Susie Montgomery about his new book inspired by the Aceh called The Shrinking Jungle. I'm an anthropologist and an archaeologist. I've been an archaeologist in this intermountain region for 30 years. And I had a great opportunity when I was in graduate school at University of Utah in the early 1980s to go to South America and live among hunter-gatherers who lived in the mountains of Paraguay. Uh, one of my colleagues was a, a student named Kim Hill, who's now a professor at Arizona State, um, who had lived among these people as a Peace Corps volunteer and uh, had an in with them. And uh, we went down and, and did ethnographic and ethnoarchaeological work, which was what I did. And I'd never been in, in lowland South America, you know, I'd never been among people like that. The whole experience was a life-changing one for me. Meeting these people who lived until just a few years before that, completely as hunter-gatherers, uncontacted, but by peaceful contact with the, with the European world, with the, with the modern world. To spend time with these people and see how they organized their lives and how they went about obtaining subsistence and sheltering themselves and taking care of their kids was unbelievable to me. It was just one of the most amazing things that I ever what experienced. Exact, what year was this and what exactly was unbelievable? This was in the 19, early 1980s. Just to see the way they understood the jungle, understood the forest, uh, knew the plants and animals intimately more than I knew anything in the world and uh, and knew how to live there in a place that was the most one of the most harsh places I've ever been. This was a place that, and I was a hiker and a camper and uh, outdoorsy. Um, I think if, if I had been left behind by one of the bands that I was with in the forest, I would have lasted maybe the rest of the afternoon. You know, it was, this is a, this is a rough place. <laughs> what would have gotten you, you think? Snakes, jaguars, uh, I wouldn't have found anything. I would have eaten the poisonous berries. I don't know, you know. It just, I was as completely out of, out of my element as, and I thought about this when I was in the forest, as if I had taken one of the Ache and just dropped him off in the middle of a, of a street in, a, in an urban area. Um, they wouldn't have known anything about you know, how to get around or anything like that. But this, by the same token, I was just as lost in that, in that forest. But also what really struck me was the stories of the lives of the people that I lived with. And now they had come from being full-time hunter-gatherers basically in the Stone Age and confronted directly the 20th century within their lifetimes and had come from the Stone Age to the 20th century in a very, very short amount of time. I mean, they'd been at war with people with shotguns and rifles, and they had bows and arrows that they made out of hardwood trees and palm trees. So just the stories that they told were pretty phenomenal. And I, I felt really privileged to have an opportunity to talk with people, to get to know people who, who lived in this way, because all of our ancestors lived as hunter-gatherers for many hundreds of thousands of years. I mean, we are hunter-gatherers. That's how we evolved. We evolved in that context. Our social organizations, our, our physical skills, our abilities, our spirituality, our music, our mental capacity, our social skills, all evolved around a fire with other people who were getting up every morning and hunting and gathering for our subsistence. This is a way, that, way of life that is common to all of us for much, much longer time than we've been farming and living in houses. So, and it seems that you're saying you could feel that, that in yourself when you were there. 
I knew it. It's sort of like staring into a fire. I mean, I've had this experience many times camping. When we sit around a fire, it doesn't matter if you're the most urban person or the most rural person. When you're out in a field and you're sitting with friends and it's night and you have a fire going, everyone is drawn to that fire. Your gaze goes to the fire. The fire cements us together. The fire, the fire comforts us. The fire entertains us. The fire is a magnet for us. Mm -hmm. And that, I believe, is basically something that's wired into our nervous systems for many hundreds of thousands of years of that being the thing that warmed us, that that helped us, that, that kept away bad guys and enemies. And the feeling of being with people who were so close to the natural world, sitting around campfires with them in the middle of the middle of the jungle, the the frightening and scary jungle really struck a chord with me and really made me, helped me understand that this is who we all were very, very recently. I also had the lucky opportunity to visit the Ache and camp with them in the forest. Here's an excerpt of my report on the Kwe Ache and their efforts to save their rainforest, their ancestral homeland. I spent a few early winter nights in the rainforest in eastern Paraguay with a group of 20 Aceh men, women, and children, and it wasn't romantic. We ate fox, rodents, nuts, and berries, and insect larvae roasted on sticks like marshmallows. The last night, the Aceh men came back to camp with two dead monkeys and an armadillo. The eldest woman chopped up the armadillo and burned the hair off the monkeys and cooked them over the small campfire. She boiled the monkey heads. Everyone shared the feast. Nothing was wasted. Even the monkey heads were licked clean and the brains were scooped out with a twig and savored. Kim Hill, professor of anthropology at Arizona State University, has known the Ache for 30 years. He first encountered the Ache while serving in the Peace Corps in Paraguay in 1978. Now he is their close friend and advocate. You get used to it or you die, but you, yeah. you'd think in the middle that you're probably going to die before you get used to it because... You get more and more mosquito bites, and sometimes you can have a great big scab, open pussy wound on your leg within a week of going to the forest that started as a little tick bite, and sleeping with kids crawling all over you at night, sleep deprivation sets in and you feel exhausted after about 10 days of eating nothing but meat and insect larvae. You're like, oh my God, I can't stand another piece of meat. The Ache are especially well-suited to this environment, and in it they thrive like superheroes. Barefoot, they move swiftly through dense and prickly tick-infested terrain. The men can jog several hours a day through the forest with bows and arrows hunting wild game. A seasoned marathon runner would have a hard time keeping up. The women and young girls carry heavy hand-woven baskets filled with clothes and supplies on their backs and heads. When they find a spot to camp for the night, hours are spent sitting around a few plate-sized campfires. The Ache are really kind of happy-go-lucky people in their attitude. They love to joke and laugh and sing and smile all the time. I mean, there's a deeper side to them, too. It just They don't show it usually to people unless they know them really well. There's definitely cases of depression. Magdalena Hurtado, professor of anthropology at Arizona State University, married Kim Hill when they were both graduate students in anthropology at the University of Utah in the early 1980s. They have three daughters who often joined them on field trips to Paraguay to live with the Ache. Like her husband, Hurtado has dedicated her life to helping the Ache. What I love most about the Ache is their interpersonal interactions. Their whole idea that it's really important to forgive and understand others when they do things that are harmful. But the process of forgiveness is you forgive, but you also expect the other person to come completely clean. There are about 1,200 Aceh Indians living in several different villages and regions of the forest. They farm small crops, including corn, peanuts, and manioc, but hunting and gathering is still a prized part of life. The Ambarticaju Reserve is a chunk of forest about the size of Connecticut, adjacent to where the Aceh live. It was established as a nature preserve in 1991 as a result of efforts sparked by Hill and Hurtado. The Aceh help protect and manage the reserve as conservationists and park guards. They are the only group with legal rights to use the reserve, but only according to their traditional hunting and gathering methods. 
The Ambarica Jew Reserve is a national jewel, but it's also a treasure chest where predators abound. The main intruders are marijuana and soy farmers, illegal hunters and poachers, loggers, and landless peasants called campesinos who try to invade the Aceh territory, sometimes igniting fierce battles that often result in one or two deaths. The animals are disappearing at an incredibly rapid rate, and nothing is being done about it, and nothing has been done about it for years. The reserve is supposed to be the Aceh supermarket. But when somebody leaves the door wide open to your supermarket and lets everybody come in and steal everything they want, you don't get anything out of it anymore. And so obviously the Aceh are really unhappy about the situation. The reserve is governed by the United Nations, funded by international conservation groups and subject to international law. But Paraguay is a culture where lawlessness presides. Lucy Aquino is the director of the World Wildlife Fund in Paraguay. Here is, is a culture of impunity and corruption and threats. And how can you work that way? That's why we as an international conservation organization rather to work with NGOs and people from the government. Back at camp, it's nightfall, and the Aceh are huddled together on the damp forest floor. Their smiling faces are lit by the soft light of the campfires. Unexpectedly, the eldest man starts singing an old traditional Aceh song. He inspired his wife to sing, too. It's an art form that's dying along with the forest. The things that I experienced there were profoundly moving to me and uh, on many different levels, intellectually very much so, but also on other levels. And I wanted, to, I wanted to be able to tell those stories. I wanted to be able to come back and tell that story to my mother and to tell about these people to my neighbors. But I didn't have a very good way of doing that. And I did write uh, the scientific work that I did, which is jargony and, and very important in the, in the scientific sense, but not readable by a regular person. I could have written a, tried to write a, a, a typical ethnography, which is sort of a descriptive way of writing about people. Those tend to not be real readable either. They, they tend to be uh, sort of like you know a, a report on the, the way the so-and-so do something, and those are not very exciting. And I couldn't think of any better way to do it, so I just started making up a, a fictitious band you know, using kind of the characters and the people that I knew and trying to write a, a, a story of the way they lived and, and some of their stories in the context of a, a, of a fictional bunch of characters. So who's the main character in your book? Main character is a kid. Main character is a kid named Catfish. He's about a nine-year-old boy. I can tell you why the main character is a boy, a, a nine-year-old boy, because when I was among the Ache, I hung out with the kids a whole lot. Um, I was in my 30s, but I hung out with the kids a whole lot because the kids, well, kids are not all tied up and don't have busy things to do all day, like watch other kids or go out and, and hunt and so forth. And kids are very tolerant of people who don't speak the language very well. They, they're very accepting. So I learned a whole lot from the kids. I hung out with the kids, and I really enjoyed them, and I made very good friends with, with young boys and young girls. And um, Were they different from... Other nine-year-old boys, let's say. I felt that if I would have been interjected into that situation when I was nine years old, I would have been exactly like those kids. Uh, in fact, I felt the whole time that the way of life of these people, any of us would be that way if we were in that circumstance. They were doing the thing that uh, any of us would do if we had the skills and the, and, and the knowledge uh, to, to live in that circumstance. And it's not told from his perspective, but he's really the one that we follow throughout. And his, his family, his little nuclear family, his parents, and they're all based on people I know. I, I'm real happy with the way it turned out. Where did you get the name Catfish? Well, all, all Ache are named for, for an animal. Uh, all Ache are named for an, an animal that their mother prepared uh, for, for a meal sometime while she was pregnant with them. And for some reason, that animal stuck out in her mind. That, that was a significant, either a significant event happened or there was some significance to it. And she chose, she chooses that name for her child. Um, so they all, every, everyone has a, an animal name and, and they, they, they actually have a suffix that's attached to the, to the animal name. So you know that you're not just talking about a catfish, but you're talking about the boy named catfish. And it's what's your Ache name? Kriegi. And it's uh, for a kind of armadillo. They just decided when I was down there that that should be my name. So, In fact, the Ache gave me a name too, Jakugi, which means wild turkey. And I had a similar experience with the children. They were my happy guides. 
the story starts with a, an event that that I, I heard about happening um, that happened in the in the 1960s, some point, in which an Ache band is attacked early in the morning by a bunch of uh, peasant farmers. And they've somehow tracked this band into the forest and surrounded them and attacked the band and, and killed some of them. And the rest of the band ran off into the forest. They've lost everything. They've lost all of their belongings and they've just gotten away with their lives. And so the band of about 25 people has to reconstitute itself. They, they have to, they have to, you know, gather themselves together and, uh, recreate their technology so they have to rebuild what they had and find a new place to uh, to hunt and, and to live and so we follow them through that the course of rebuilding their lives and so in the course of that I tell you how they make their mats how they make their bows how they build their their houses when they build houses how they how they organize their camps and things which is one of the things I wanted to try to do is sort of explain those things how they did things so it doesn't get lost forever kind of thing yeah, and I tried to make it in a, in a way that, it, that it's integral to the story so that it's not just a, a dry description of how to build a shelter in the jungle. But, I mean, if, if you're interested in how Aceh builds shelters, it's in the book. You know, I just remember a story you once telling me, um, and as you say, going into foreign places and trying to sort of adapt and learn from different perspectives and how people different, different people live. And at that time, you, you were doing that... Um, you had quite a major accident that has has almost become as a musician as as you've had to overcome the losing of your thumb. Can you tell that story? It was one of my trips in Paraguay. Yeah, we were in a a bad car crash in uh, in rural Paraguay. Our vehicle sideswiped a bus going in the opposite direction, and we rolled down the middle of the road. and And my hand was basically torn to shreds. My right hand, and. Um, we had to hitchhike into town and find a find a hospital and and, and did finally eventually. There was a land Toyota Land Cruiser station wagon and I crawled out of the upside down car through the windshield and I felt something kind of dangling and I looked down and it was a big chunk of my hand that had been ripped off from the rest of it and was just hanging by some strings and things. I thought, oh geez, that's not very good. And a lady was standing nearby who'd gotten off the bus that we'd hit and handed me a cloth and wrapped it up. Thumb included? Yeah, yeah, all the parts. Jones and Hill were then offered a ride to the hospital by a Paraguayan man in the area. Their misfortune was not over yet. I started feeling hot and... Uh, I thought, oh, that's, this isn't good. I'm not not feeling that well. And then I realized there were fumes coming up uh, through the floorboards. And I said, I, I think your car's on fire. And uh, he had to stop the car. And there were some wires that were on fire in oh. the car. So they had to put the fire out. Jones eventually made it to the hospital and had to return to the States early to mend his wounds. So I find this really interesting. So are you a scientist first, a musician second, an author third? And what inspired you to delve into storytelling? Um, This is your first novel, published novel. Is that right? Yes. It's not your first publication. I worked with you in the late 90s. And as a volunteer, I was working with you on... A really oversized, glossy, full-color interactive magazine, science magazine for kids, that also was accompanied by a TV series similar to Nickelodeon-style TV series. Um, Since I've known you, you've been an incredibly innovative uh, guy who's really committed to storytelling. At the time, you were the state archaeologist, and you were, you know, not typical, I would say. Why is these stories coming out of you? Where do they come from? I'm, I'm real curious about the world, and the way I understand things in the world is as, as they relate to other things, as they're part, of, uh, part and parcel of something. So if I'm learning about any one thing, I don't just learn about that thing it, in itself. I learn about you know, its place in geography and time and other things, and that lends to 
filling it in as a story. The, the richness of everything has a story, even if it's a rock. Where does this rock come from? Well, there is a long history to that. But also, part of it is related to my desire to tell this story. I find the world to be a very interesting place. I'm just I'm enthralled by almost everything, and I like sharing that. So I enjoy writing, uh, especially for kids, especially for young people. I really enjoy writing about the archaeology that I do. I find the archaeology that I've done through my life extraordinarily interesting. Unfortunately, in some ways, when you're a, a scientist, a lot of the ways that you report on the stuff that you do is not real interesting unless you know a whole lot about it. Science is filled with jargon and uh, special language that, that we use, scientists use to talk to each other. It, it doesn't mean we're not excited about what we're, what we're talking about. We are, but we're, we're telling a story that's only accessible to a small number of people who, who have that same background and all that information that you do. But there are a lot of other people who are interested in, in the archaeology as well, and I need to be able to write it for them if I want to tell them about it. So I write it, you write it in a different way, that's all. It doesn't make it any less scientific or valuable. But I think that, uh, for one thing, I mean, in writing for kids and talking about doing Zinge magazine and Zinge, Zinge TV, I think a lot of what people have done for kids uh, in terms of educational stuff about science is right down to them. They oversimplify and make and make science silly. And I don't think that's the way to learn things. I don't think you learn by anything by making it silly. But you can write about things in ways that make it interesting and fun. And uh, and I have fun learning and I have fun writing about things that I learn about. Uh, I'm not sure I'm the best writer in the world, but I'm an enthusiastic writer. So I, I brought up the scientist, the musician, and now author um, goes beside your name. Are you going to continue writing and are you going to continue science, music, and writing, and in what capacity? Um, I think I'm condemned to do all those things. Uh, I don't <laughs> think I can get away from them very easily. I love playing music. I've always played music, whether I play in a band or I'm just sitting on my back porch playing and uh, singing for my dogs. But um, I'll always do that. And, and writing, I've always written, like any published author. Um, I have trunks full of notebooks full of stuff that I've scribbled down over the years and written down. Lots of it is meaningless to anyone but me, but I'm sort of compulsive about that, and I'm a compulsive note taker and a, and a story writer, and I continue to write fiction, and I continue to write nonfiction, and I continue to write songs and play songs, and having a pretty big old time working on all those things. Awesome. Kevin Jones plays the mandolin and performs vocals for the bluegrass band, The Lab Dogs. Because you started your book right after your ethnographic sort of experience in, in Paraguay, and you just published it. came out in uh, October 2012. I really completed this novel in its, in its basic form in uh, 1988. I actually tried for a little while to, to get it published at the time. I, I sent it around to a few publishers and agents and really didn't get any real interest in it. Um, I took a new job, had a, had a child, sort of just set it on the shelf for a real long time. And um, it wasn't until a couple of years ago that I was talking with uh, one of the editors at University of Utah Press and, uh, and told her about the book. And she said, well, send it to me and we'll, we'll see. If I'll be glad to take a look at it. And did. And had it reviewed and, and got good positive responses to it. So she decided to publish it. So I'm very happy about that. There's some really serious issues happening to the Aceh in Paraguay right now in terms of a land struggle. Can you just talk to that and how the publishing of this book is actually quite timely with perhaps the demise of the entire culture? Well, the Aceh people didn't go away when I stopped, you know, working with them ethnographically. In fact, Kim Hill continues to go down and work with them and has now for 30-some years. But they're struggling. They, they came out of the forest as uh, second-class citizens and were treated poorly by the locals and had no land. They had no, you know, they had no inheritance. They had no way of knowing how to deal with the, the modern world. And gradually, they've been trying to uh, establish themselves, and they've, you know, they've organized somewhat, and um, have tried to obtain some land that they could use in a traditional way. And they have. They just just recently, in 2012, the government granted them, granted the tribe, a deed to a fairly substantial piece of land of their traditional 
traditional land. There's been lots of controversy since then. There are uh, local campesinos, squatters, who've been trying to use that land. There's potential for armed conflict. So there's, there's a lot of tension in the area of... Uh, Competition for the for the traditional hunting lands of the of the Ache, and they are working with some some companies. One of them is called Guayaki, which makes herbal teas and especially yerba mate, which is a traditional drink of, of Paraguay. And they're growing shade grown, natural, organic uh, yerba mate on the Ache lands. And Ache are helping to harvest it and and cure it and and sell it. So there is an opportunity for economic development for them, but their lands are being threatened. They're in a tough spot right now. And uh, I'm, I'm hoping maybe that by publishing this book, I can at least raise the conversation up a little bit, let people know that this situation is transpiring and maybe there's some ways that uh, we can draw some attention to it and, and, and help out a little bit. Mm-hmm. This seems like, you know, it's a smaller story of the Aceh group, but it's analogous to so many situations across the world of people fighting for traditional land and traditional lifestyle. So I feel like... You know, it, it joins a bigger conversation, and most people haven't heard of the Ache, but... It's a story that's repeated over and over again everywhere in the world, and, and what's compounding it in, in this area is the deforestation that comes along with modern incursion into that forest. And many of the forests that I traveled with the Ache in and foraged in in the early 1980s are no longer forests anymore. have been cut down and turned into pasture land or farmland. So that whole ecosystem is dramatically altered by human hands, and it's part of the ongoing uh, deforestation of the tropics. In, in many ways, it's a large-scale ecological disaster that's going on, but it's also very understandable. I mean, those, those trees aren't being cut down really by multinational corporations. They're being cut down one at a time by uh, uh, people who are trying to grow a garden and feed their children. So it's, uh, you know, it's not something that's easily understood or fought politically. There's a lot of competition for the land, and, and there probably always will be. Um, I'm hoping the Aceh can maintain some lands that they can use collectively and help to provide an economic base for themselves because they're, they've been there forever and, and have used that land very well for many, many thousands of years. I hope they can continue to have a little bit of a, uh, a say in how the land is used. You would say that you have an emotional tie to this group. Yeah, I do have an attachment to them. They're, they're people I know. I have a personal connection. And I do care about their, their well-being. I do care about their, their economic and physical health. And, uh, and I want to see them move into the modern world in a way that doesn't completely destroy them. Mm-hmm. What did you learn about yourself um, through writing this book or even your experience with them? Other than maybe the fact that you can't survive in every environment without a little bit of time and practice. I think you learn about yourself by putting yourself into in situations that are different than the ones that you're accustomed to. I think we grow by traveling. And by traveling, and I don't necessarily just mean going places, but I mean seeing different places and experiencing different places and meeting people who, who live and look at the world in very different ways than you do. Uh, I think we learn more about ourselves doing that than in almost any anything that we can do. I think travel and living among other people is the best cure for uh, ethnocentrism and bigotry that we can have. And it helps us also to understand that our way isn't the best, necessarily. The appeal of the book is that you learn about people in a, in a culture that's different from ours, but also you learn about something that's not but that's not going to be around very much longer is the, the hunter-gatherer way of life. And it's something that's common to all of us. It's common to all of our ancestors. For many hundreds of thousands of years, we lived as hunter-gatherers. So it's it's a way to uh, learn about that. And, and for better or for worse, I experienced that life way with these people. I didn't just make this up. I mean, there are a lot of people who have written written books about cavemen and things like that, but they just made it all up. It's all made up. This one... Warts and all, this is what living like a hunter-gatherer is like, and uh, I'm pretty happy with the way the story came out. Well, congratulations on the publication of this book. All right, thanks. Kevin Jones was the State of Utah archaeologist for 20 years, and he continues to work in the field and play music. Science Questions is produced by Sherry Quinn, Susie Montgomery, and Elaine Taylor, with production support by Clint Holgate. Thank you for listening. 
Support for Science Questions is provided by Apogee Instruments of Cache Valley, creating innovative sensors for measuring climate change, sustainable food production, and renewable energy. More information is at apogeeinstruments.com. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. I'm Megan Van Frank. This week, learn how one man turned his personal passion for skiing into a long-standing and thriving family business. First this. The Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by the Utah Humanities Council with support from a We the People grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities and the Lawrence T. and Janet T.D. Foundation. Like many Utahns, Harold Seeholzer loved snow and skiing. But how did his enthusiasm for outdoor recreation turn into one of Cache Valley's most notable ski resorts? In the late 1930s, Harold and a few local ski fanatics engineered the first rope tow lift at Beaver Mountain, near the top of Logan Canyon. Although the canyon was open to year-round traffic in 1939, Beaver Mountain appealed only to the most determined skiers. There was no road into Beaver Mountain, so skiers parked on the main highway and hiked in about a mile. The motor for the lift was also at the top of the mountain, so every morning someone had to hike up to start it. Because of these difficulties, the ski operation eventually moved to the nearby Sinks area, until it too closed down in 1945. But Harold and his wife Luella were determined to create a winter recreation area for families, so made another pitch for Beaver Mountain in the late 1940s. With a help from the Cache County Commission, funding was found to build a road and parking lot to make the area accessible. Rope tow and T-bar lifts were installed thanks to support from the Mount Logan Ski Club, the Forest Service, the Cache Chamber of Commerce, as well as personal funding from Harold and Luella. The Beaver Mountain Ski Resort was well underway by 1950. In 1961, Harold and Luella brought their children into the family business and continued to add lifts, runs, and buildings. However, one goal remained unfulfilled. From the beginning of his skiing career, Harold dreamed of having a chairlift rise from the base of Beaver Mountain to its peak. He died in 1968 before this could be accomplished, but within two years, his family opened just such a chairlift. Appropriately, they named it Harry's Dream. Today, Harold Seeholzer's Beaver Mountain Ski Resort is the oldest family-run ski operation in the country. Content for this episode of the Beehive Archive was provided by the Stokes Nature Center in Logan Canyon. Sources and past episodes may be found at utahhumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of the Utah Humanities Council, I'm Megan Van Frank. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 89.5 Logan, KUSK HD1 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD1 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD1 88.7 Moab, and KUSUFM HD1 91.5 Logan.